Good morning. We're working on our way through 2 Corinthians, and one thing about Paul's letters that are included in the Bible is that they are conversations. So we get one half of a conversation. Understanding Paul's letters is a little bit like listening to a phone conversation and only getting one side. You have to kind of figure out what's happening on the other end of the line. Um, And that's what we have to do when we come to Paul's letters. Apparently what's happening here, Paul's rivals, there are individuals that have entered the church and they're trying to dislodge Paul from his rightful place as spiritual leader of the church at Corinth. They're challenging his authority. And and in order to do so, they are belittling him and his adequacy. And in order to defend the gospel, Paul finds himself in the unenviable position of having to defend himself. What it says, beginning in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 10, verse 7, Paul says, Look at what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is Christ's, let him remind himself just, that just as he is Christ's, so also are we. For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. Paul says, look what is before your eyes. Uh, Look at the evidence before your very eyes. They're doubting he is Christ's representative. And Paul's point is, you doubt I'm Christ's representative? How was this church founded in the first place? It's a little bit like the wise guy, smart Alex, saying, "Um, did your mother have any kids that lived? Paul is saying here, Their existence as Christ's church is evidence that he is Christ's servant and that God is working through him. The fact is, God picked Paul, a former Pharisee, to establish his church among Gentiles. God gave him authority, and Paul wanted to exercise this authority for building up, not tearing down. He doesn't want to have to use it in a harsh way when he arrives in Corinth. He says in verse 9, I do not want to be, I do not want to appear to be frightening you with my letters. For they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. Let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. Apparently, Paul knew a lot of things, but his eloquence and physical presence were not commanding. There's there's an example, a a circumstance that occurred in Acts chapter 20. Let me read this. On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, kept on talking until midnight. There were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were meeting. Seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. When he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. So Paul um, put this guy to sleep. Unfortunately, this guy was sitting in a window and and fell off the window. Um, Fortunately, there's a good ending to the story. We go on, Paul, uh, verse 10 of Acts 20, went down, threw himself on the young man and put his arms around him. Don't be alarmed, he said. He's alive. Then he went upstairs again and broke bread and ate after talking until daylight he left. 
the people took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. Um, Paul knew a lot of things, but from a presence perspective, apparently he was less than awe-inspiring. They believed, his detractors, that his oratory left much to be desired. His physical appearance and his mannerisms weren't very powerful. The fact that he had to engage in a tent making, tent meeting, making, excuse me, tent making business. Uh, that lowered his status in their eyes. They felt like, well, he really can't earn his keep as a speaker. And by contrast, these individuals, these detractors in Corinth, appear to embody the very ideals that Paul lacked in their opinion. They displayed a commanding spiritual presence. They spoke with great eloquence and they had more flashy evidences of divine authority, and they were not shy about comparing themselves with Paul. Uh, Paul, we find in, in uh, chapter 10, verse 12, not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. These individuals that Paul is kind of battling, they judged themselves and Paul according to the things they valued, their commanding presence, their displays of power and authority, their impressive speech. They felt that they were worth their full compensation. Uh, they endured hardship, they had mystical visions, and they are daring enough to push themselves forward. And what their statement to the Corinthians is, okay, look at us and look at Paul. Who's Christ's representative? I mean, really, who is the one that seems to embody the presence of a servant of God? Us or him? In Paul's time, comparison, this kind of comparison, trash talking, turf war, was common among teachers. People were constantly vying with others to attain glory. They engaged in a constant game of one-upmanship, and this was true of teachers as well. Comparing oneself with other teachers was a common tactic for a teacher to attract students. And the reason why you want to attract students, if you were a teacher, you could attract the fees the students would pay. Self-condemnation, commendation, excuse me, proves nothing to Paul except a lack of understanding on the part of those who commended themselves. And apparently this is something that was uh, common in the church. James, when he's writing to other Jewish Christian congregations, um, he ran into the same problem as well. In James 3, he writes in verse th beginning in verse 13, who is wise and understanding among you? It's a good question. And then James goes on to talk about how you can identify wisdom that's from God by his good conduct. Let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom and the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. It's a big statement. When James is talking about where does disorder 
come from, every vile practice that he found in churches. Um, what he does, he traces it to the use of selfishness, selfish ambition and jealousy in the context. It seems to describe the, the circumstance in, in their day where one church would try to attract um, Christians, Jewish Christians to their church by comparing their spiritual leader unfavorably with the spiritual leader of the one who was trying to reel these um, individuals in. And um, James, dis he distinguishes wisdom from above and wisdom from below, heavenly wisdom and earthly wisdom. And the, what he says is interesting. The way you can determine if somebody is being influenced by wisdom from below or wisdom from above, you can tell it by the posture they take. Somebody who elevates themselves over others is being propelled by wisdom from below, which pushes them up over people. And that's what James is discouraging. Somebody who is being innervated by wisdom from above won't place themselves above people because their wisdom is coming from above and it exerts a downward influence on them. And they then, when being impelled by wisdom from above, will lead individuals not to elevate themselves over, but to serve from underneath. And that's what James indicates. And that's why in his letter, especially warning those who would claim to speak on God's behalf, he warned the teachers would be judged more strictly. Um, the Bible seems to have this as a thread. Those who don't claim to speak authoritatively on God's behalf, that's, it, it's not as much an issue as those who do claim to speak on God's behalf. That's why Jesus seems to, well, not seems to, he did. He had such confrontation with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law in his day, because they were claiming to speak on God's behalf. And, and Jesus knew that he had to challenge that. Uh, but self-flattery isn't just a problem for teachers. Uh, in Psalm 36, King David had a provocative aha moment. He couldn't figure out how people could kind of pushed himself above others. And he was, um, he just couldn't, he just couldn't understand that. He couldn't get how people could be blind to their own issues. And then in Psalm 36, verse one, he comes to a place where he says, I got it. And then here's what he says. An oracle is within my heart. An oracle is kind of an aha moment. It's when you're trying to figure something out and then I got it. So light bulb goes off. And here's what David says. An oracle is within my heart concerning the sinfulness of the wicked. He couldn't understand how somebody could give themselves to wickedness and, and not really care. It's, it's like their conscience wasn't working. And David couldn't figure this out. He did things that were wrong. When he came to be confronted about it, he felt bad about it. And what he couldn't understand is... The people that he looked around and saw that they were almost like moral flatliners and conscienceless. They 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 didn't seem to 
be too broken up about what they did anyways. He, um, he says, there is no fear. He says, there is no fear of God before his eyes, for in his own eyes, he flatters himself too much to detect or hate his own sin. This is what David comes up with. He says, I got it. What happens when somebody flatters themselves, flatter, the image is to smooth the surface of a blemished object. Say if you have something that's cracked or worn or something like that, to flatter when when you're considering an object is to smooth the exterior, to kind of put something on it to make it seem purer and uh, without defect. Really, it has defects, but you're kind of smoothing the surface on it so it looks better than it actually is. Uh, This is what David said, that he could see this in people. It's individuals who were so busy projecting a smooth exterior that they did so, and they did it in order to protect an ordinary interior. Um, David realized something that Jesus realized as well when he dealt with the religious leaders. For them, image was everything. And he confronted those with whom image is everything. And David does similarly. What David realized is that when image is everything, when how things look is all that matters, how things really are never gets dealt with. And that's one of the things in the Bible that it indicates that God doesn't judge things by appearance. He judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. And the problem with kind of making the appearance shiny is that's not what God judges. And what God judges is not how we look, but what we think and our attitudes not just the expression of those attitudes outside. What David found, and here's what he comes to see, we can be, he could see people in his day, and and I think we could make the case today, certainly, that we can become so entranced by cultivating the admiration of others, smoothing the surface of things, making things look better than they are, that we can become blind to our own shortcomings. Greek culture understood the danger of living off of the reflection of the admiration of others. They had a legend, um, the legend of Narcissus. Um, Narcissus was um, rejected the advances of uh, a young woman named Echo. This was kind of Greek mythology. So Echo was uh, a young woman who really thought Narcissus was something, and he rejected her advances. Uh, unfortunately, Echo was um, her mother was the goddess Nemesis, and so uh, what Nemesis did because Narcissus rejected the advances of her daughter Echo. Again, this is Greek mythology. Narcissus was cursed and he was consigned to pine away as he fell in love with his own reflection. Um, And so he had to kind of be taken up with pining away for his own reflection, fell in love with himself, even as Echo 
uh, pined away for him. It's interesting when you think about Narcissus. So here's a guy who kind of is falling in love with his reflection in the water. There's a difference between loving yourself, though, and, and loving your reflection. Um, the problem with loving your reflection is that when your reflection leaves, the ability to love yourself leaves as well. And this is something that when you think about it, those who do things in such a way to attract the admiration of others, and it's okay to be admired by others, but when that becomes the only way you can really love yourself is to see admiration in the eyes of um, those around you, somebody with a narcissistic personality disorder is one who, to an extreme degree, needs to cultivate the admiration of others in order to feel okay about themselves. I want you to think about that. If the only way you can love yourself is by seeing admiration um, reflected in the eyes of others, and so you're always having to do that thing that makes others go, ooh, that was wonderful, and ah, boy, was that great, is that when there's nobody around to say ooh and ah, your ability to love yourself vanishes. That's the difference between loving yourself and loving your reflection. When reflectors go away, um, the ability to love yourself goes with them. Um, it's one of the, um, perhaps one of the, the downsides, can be one of the downsides of social media. We can become so busy projecting and protecting an image that we lose sight of ourselves. At any rate, um, getting back to Paul, he doesn't try to assert his superiority over others by comparing himself with them or by boasting about himself. Um, look at in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 13. He says, but we will not boast beyond the limits, but will boast only with regard to the area of influence God assigned to us to reach even to you. For we are not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you. For we were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. We do not boast beyond limit in the labors of others. But our hope is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged. So that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you without boasting of work already done in another's area of influence. Let the one who boasts boast on the Lord. For it is not the one who commands himself who is approved but the one whom the Lord commends. Now, Paul doesn't claim spiritual influence in places he hadn't sowed seed and watered it. The reason the church existed in this place was because Paul planted it. And others are coming into a place that they have not established ministry in and trying to attract away um, these Christians to themselves. They are pushing Paul from places he worked hard to cultivate. Um, kind of they did it by, again, comparing themselves with him. Uh, leads us to maybe posit a question with respect to spiritual leaders, maybe pastors. Is it wrong to compare pastors? I think it's probably natural. Uh, we could ask, well, how should we judge spiritual leaders? Well, pastors, those in positions of spiritual authority, how should we judge them? By how well they speak or um, by how? A better question. 
not how should we judge spiritual leaders. How will God judge them? That's a good question. How will God judge those in positions of spiritual leadership? Quote says, First Corinthians, the first letter Paul wrote to the church. Apparently, comparison had been a long-term issue. And so what Paul kind of tries to establish is exactly how you should, <clears throat> how God will um, judge those in positions of spiritual authority. Here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4.1. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of a steward that they be found faithful. Paul says a steward is somebody who took something from the master of the house and distributed it to the servants. So what would happen in the case of a large house that had a uh, one who oversaw the house, he had a lot of servants. What would happen is that individual, the lord of the house, the owner of the house would pick one or several of the servants to function as middlemen, to be those who received the provisions from the master and would direct these provisions to the servants. So they had kind of administrative roles. Um, and it was required of those stewards that when they received something from the master, they would be faithful to distribute those goods to the servants who needed them. And what Paul, he applies this spiritually. And what Paul indicates is that, that God's stewards, those who were placed in positions of authority, are supposed to take words from him and distribute those words to those to whom God wants to speak. And then it's important then that a steward be found faithful, that what God tells the individuals in positions of spiritual authority to say, that's what they say. And he goes on, he says in 1 Corinthians 4, 3, but with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It's the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. You know what it says? We really can't judge um, fully somebody in a position of spiritual authority because those in positions of spiritual authority, pastors, those who are teachers, and um, the Lord's the one who's going to judge. And that's why it says, don't judge anything before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's hearts. Then each will receive his commendation from God. You know, I think it's like, you ever seen that, you ever done the game where uh, you have a, a, a line of people and you have, uh, you give the person on the end a sentence to whisper 
into the ear of the person next to them. So that person whispers something into that person's ear and you have them whisper that thing from person to person to person to person. And then the thing is, it's you have to compare the sentence that was stated to the first one and you compared that with what this guy in the end ended up hearing and it's not, it's, sometimes it's not close. Uh, that seems to be the image that Paul is, is um, talking about here. What will happen? Um, God was clear about what he wanted to be said. And over the years, um, this person says it to this, this person says it to this. And in the end, God will indicate what he said. And those who were trying to be more careful about matching what it is he said won't perhaps be that far off. But those who are far off, it will become clear because this is what God said and this is what they were saying. And it doesn't really, it doesn't really line up. Um, those claiming to speak for God will be held accountable for saying what God has instructed us to say. Um, doesn't seem then that we can really judge before the appointed time. And I could be judged by the size of churches or the how large or small the budget is, how many conversions. A steward, those in positions of spiritual authority, will be judged on the basis of how close they were in saying what the words that God gave them to say. Um, but getting away from um, pastors or spiritual leaders in general and, and broadening, um, in this time where we're dealing with the virus and um, there's a lot of service happening, people are seeking to go out of their way to encourage and not all those things are seen. We hear some stories about individuals who do this and do that and, and go out of their way to try to serve others. Um, but we don't always, might, we might even have tried ourselves and, and wonder, does anybody ever really notice you know, he might have done things or tried to serve God and and it was never recognized, perhaps. Um, this verse, God always recognizes service done for him. Um, that's what it says in Hebrews 6. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love that you've shown toward his name and having ministered and is still ministering to the saints. Here's what it says about God. God never loses sight of things done in his name, trying to extend love to others. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work. He won't. And the love you've shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. And this time, uh, um, God would give us the, the wisdom and the um, grace to um, continue to do those things that allow us to, to come alongside others who are struggling in this, in this very difficult time. Might come alongside others different ways, little notes, um, gifts to encourage others. God never loses sight of those kind of things. Let me pray for us. Father, we've, we've considered a couple things. Um, those in positions of spiritual authority and Paul dealing with those who were pushing themselves alongside him, seeking to kind of uh, nudge him out of the way. 
and he indicates that the final analysis, you're the one that will determine um, who was faithful and who was not. Um, thanks that you you uh, do notice uh, service when we try to express our faith and love towards others. You notice, you never forget those things, and you bring those to light. Thanks for that. Continue to give us grace and wisdom in this difficult time. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks.